0: Welcome to Visiting Professors, this is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As in all of these programs, we ask the clinical investigator to travel to the practice of an oncologist in a community-based setting and visit with a number of patients in a special education clinic, in this case, patients with colorectal cancer. For this program, Dr. Phil Glynn from Westfield, Massachusetts, hosted Dr. Dan Haller and Dr. Dan Moriarty from Summit, New Jersey, hosted Dr. Axel Grothy. To begin, Dr. Glynn presents to Dr. Haller, a woman who at initial diagnosis had liver metastases.
1: The first patient we saw is a very pleasant 61-year-old female who had presented approximately a year ago with abdominal pain. She was found to have an obstructing lesion in the transverse colon, which at the time of surgery actually turned into be three lesions, two in the transverse colon, one in the descending colon. She ultimately underwent a subtotal colectomy. Prior to her surgery, she had undergone a CT scan and there had been three lesions evident in the liver, one in the right lobe, one juxtaposed between the right and left, and one in the superior portion around the dome on the left side. She had surgery, she recovered from her surgery with some difficulty, she had an abdominal wound that required a great deal of attention and packing, she had to go back to the OR. When I saw her, we talked about therapy and ultimately aiming towards the prospects of resection of these liver lesions. She was started on Xellox, she tolerated that well. I did not give her a Vastin because of the issues of her abdominal wound and she was still getting periodic debridement. post uh, about four months of Zelox, we repeated her scans. The two lesions on the left side of the liver were no longer visible. She had one lesion on the right that was resected, and we saw her today in follow-up. And we had previously checked her for KRAS, and she is KRAS wild type. Dad?
2: We talked about an awful lot of things on this one single patient. One of them was the proper timing of hepatic resection for patients receiving chemotherapy. That is, sometimes one can be hoisted on one's own petard, have a complete response clinically and radiographically, and then have the liver surgeon have a difficult time finding lesions. I think one issue where the patient was helped out quite a bit was trying to reconcile the fact that they had disappeared on scan but were probably still viable. And I think that was very important for her to look down the fine line between a cure with chemotherapy and just excellent control. We also talked about the semantics of if one is considering further therapy in this particular patient, what's the goal of treatment, and is it adjuvant treatment or is it advanced disease treatment, which has some impact on the choice of biologic that one would like to utilize, particularly in light of the CO8 trial at ASCO this year.
0: Let me just clarify, though, Phil, when you gave her the chemo, at that point, even before she got the chemo, did you consider her that she was resectable and you were just given a pre-op therapy, or were you trying to convert her to
1: resectability? That was an ongoing topic of discussion with the surgeons. They weren't entirely sure how accessible, particularly lesion on the left dome, was going to be, and it's still somewhat of an issue. So I presented to her that our ultimate goal was to get to resection. Dan, there's been this question
0: about people like this patient who present with a primary, in this case several primaries, in metastatic disease in terms of whether the primary needs to be resected if the patient's asymptomatic. Now, of course, this patient was symptomatic. But the NSABP has a phase two study trying to see if they can avoid having these patients go to surgery. I'm curious what your thoughts were, though, because there was a presentation at ASCO by Memorial just sort of looking at their series of patients like this. I thought it was fascinating. Can you comment on
2: it? Sure. There have been a lot of studies, retrospective studies in the literature looking at this question, and it certainly doesn't appear that the asymptomatic patient absolutely requires a resection up front, even if one is giving bevacizumab. But I was also impressed with the paper from Memorial. I think they did a beautiful job of showing at the end of the day of the people who presented in an asymptomatic fashion, during the life of the patient, only about 5 or 6% of them actually needed something done to their colon. So that means in 95% of people, The primary colon surgery actually just delays more definitive therapy. Yeah, I thought it was really amazing. I mean, Phil, I mean, have you had patients where they presented with
0: metastatic disease, the primary was asymptomatic, and you were able to treat them until their death without them having to go to have the surgery?
1: Yeah, I've had two or three people that there was no obstruction, there was no bleeding. They had presented maybe with some abdominal pain or some symptomatic hepatomegaly. I've had two or three people that have been treated without ever having gone to surgery.
2: Inherent in this whole concept are a few things. One is that primary tumors are almost always the most chemosensitive tumors that people harbor. And just as a matter of course, in my own clinic, although we don't have paper charts anymore, I would forget sometimes that the patient still had their primary in. And two years into their chemotherapy, they would say, Doc, should I have a colonoscopy? So now I put a little red sticker on the front of the chart that says, Remember, the primary is mm. in place. Mm. So now in this patient, in terms of where
0: she's at right now, it's the issue of do you want to give her more systemic therapy?
1: And that actually turned into quite a discussion because she has not had Avastin. And I think we hopefully established the framework around that discussion that in all likelihood, she still had residual disease and that we were trying to prolong her symptom-free plateau by giving her some more treatment, and particularly by giving it with Avastin. So she was, I think, somewhat reluctantly acceptant to the idea that it made sense to do this. How did she do with the Xellox? She did remarkably well. She had an unusual symptomatic complaint of myalgias, which is not something I see very often. It's not a common complaint. But she clearly says that as soon as she stopped it, her thigh and her hip pain went away, and she attributed it to muscle tenderness. Any oxaliplatin issues? No problem at all. Again, Dan,
0: back to ASCO, Axel Grothy presented some more data on magnesium and calcium, and it was kind of cool because he reported on specific types of neurotoxicity and the impact.
2: What was your take on that? Well, this was a continuation of the study that was presented last year at ASCO from the Mayo Clinic. And it was an adjuvant trial with just 100 people in it. It was terminated prematurely because of some concerns that calcium and magnesium might reduce the benefits of treatment. I think it was pretty impressive for meeting its primary endpoint. It was a well-done, randomized, placebo-controlled trial where grade two or greater peripheral sensing neuropathy was clearly reduced. Not the acute neuropathy, but the primary endpoint of the study. There'll be a much larger trial coming out by Gamelin and his associates in France, which is also called the Naroxa trial, and it's also a much larger study in the advanced disease and adjuvant population.
0: It is interesting that Axel reported significantly fewer muscle cramps acute muscle cramps when people got magnesium and calcium. Is that what this woman had, acute muscle cramps?
1: She had significant muscle cramps, but she had muscle cramps well into day 8, 9, 10 when she was on her capecitabine. So could it be related to oxaliplatin? Yes. I mean, she clearly attributed taking in the capecitabine.
0: So again, Dan, what's your experience with muscle cramps and Fulfox? It's entirely
2: limited to what I think is the oxaliplatin. And again, you can see myofibrillar activity going on. And CalMag may make that better because the magnesium reverses that event. And I guess maybe it's something to consider if
0: she starts having that problem again. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Well, especially if she's going to go back on the treatment. I don't see a downside to trying it.
0: And what would you be thinking, Dan, in terms of assuming she tolerates the therapy
2: fairly well, nothing new pops up, would you keep it going indefinitely, or how would you approach it? I think I would give it for a limited period of time because of the oxaliplatin base. I would be in favor of just stopping this treatment, thinking of it more of as an adjuvant treatment, and observing her. She doesn't have visceral disease, so it's probably pretty safe to stop after she reaches her
1: maximal dose of oxaliplatin. Did anybody come with her today? Yeah. She has her son is with her all the time. And she has a very nice daughter who calls from Arizona and asks very good questions. And she has a husband that comes. So she has a very good support system. And they're obviously a very caring, attentive family.
0: And in terms of the way they approach information, are they out on the web pulling stuff? Or are they more kind of focusing on what you provide to them? They're
1: very comfortable with what we were going to tell them today. The daughter from Arizona will be on the web, but she's good. She asks good questions. And what about calcium and magnesium,
2: Phil, do you use it at all with oxaliplatin?
1: I have not been using it to date. I haven't used it.
2: How about you, Dan? I've used it primarily in the adjuvant setting, where I don't want to leave people with persistent neuropathies. Phil, what kind of obstacles do you see?
0: Obviously, it's pretty safe therapy, and the data to me looks positive. If it was a little pill that you could
1: just pop, obviously people would be taking it. What kind of obstacles are there in using it? I think it's just a matter of creating the habit of using it more. I don't think it's going to be an obstacle for me to use it. I wasn't aware that there had been that much data to show that it was all that efficacious.
0: If you knew that by giving calcium and magnesium, you could prevent the peripheral neuropathy, would that be
2: worthwhile? Absolutely. Absolutely. Neil? I think there is one practical issue that we now have gotten over because we now have moved into a new cancer center space. Before, we couldn't keep people in chairs long enough and get our patients through.
0: That's what I was wondering about.
2: Although some of the studies have used 15 minutes, some have used an hour, The other is just simply lack of good level one evidence. We have the non-randomized phase two experience from Gamelin et al. We have the underpowered concept study and then the underpowered north central group adjuvant trial. So taken together, I think the body of evidence plus the preclinical physiology of it leads me to believe it's probably true. So one final question, Dan, is there going to be a trial
0: available for patients with resectable METs? Where are things right now in terms of actually launching a trial in North America that will focus on these patients?
2: Well, the NSABP actually has a study that they're working on of pre-op versus post-op adjuvant therapy. There's a little bit of a rift right now, wider than the Atlantic Ocean, about the role of neoadjuvant treatment in patients with initially resectable liver metastases. The European studies are looking at bevacizumab and cetuximab. And I think that those are randomized phase two trials. But NSABP is planning that study, and it's already been through the GI Steering Committee. Now, they've been talking about that for a long time, Nick Petrelli and the group. But my understanding
0: has been it's going to be pre-op plus post-op versus just post-op alone. That's correct. So really questioning or getting into this whole issue of whether or not it helps to also give it pre-op. As I guess, Phil, at this point, I don't know, how often do you see patients who have hepatic resections in your practice?
1: Fairly often. It's certainly everybody I see with hepatic metastasis. I mean, it's one of the first check marks I go off. I make sure I look into, are they going to be potentially resectable?
0: And has it been your general practice to give, quote, pseudoadjuvant or systemic therapy afterwards? Afterwards, Yes. We've seen that, Dan, that that actually is kind of a de facto standard, whether we have the data for or not,
2: in terms of what's happening. I guess that's guiding a lot how this trial has been set up. That's correct. And we do have two fairly large studies in adjuvant treatment, one comparing 5-FU and lucavorin to fury, showing that fury is no better postoperative, and the other one showing that 5-FU and lucavorin looked almost as good as perioperative Folfox compared to surgery alone.